the science behind building muscle, how many sets and reps that you should do in order to build muscle, the most important variable in growing muscle, how to build a muscle group that seems nearly impossible to grow, what causes muscle soreness, and so much more coming right up. This is episode number 530 with expert on muscle hypertrophy, aka expert on how to grow your muscles, Max Coleman. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Best You Podcast with me, your host, Nick Carrier. At Best You, we exist to help individuals who are hungry for growth get closer to the best version of themselves so they can live meaningful and impactful lives. If you need something to motivate you to work out even when you're just running on fumes, if you're finding it tricky to prioritize yourself and your health and fitness, if you're finding it tricky to hold yourself accountable, if you need flexibility to exercise any day at any time, then I promise you give me 30 minutes and I bet you'll come back for more. Try out our free trial of the 10-week transformation today and I'll give you three things. Number one, you'll learn the five steps to goal success. Two, you'll gain access to three free video workouts that are high energy, very motivating, and are sure to give you a fun and great workout. And number three, you'll learn how to plan and set yourself up for success each week. You can sign up today for that free trial at nickcarrier.com slash free trial. Again, get access to these three workouts that you're going to love today by going to nickcarrier.com slash free trial. Today, I'm pumped for this episode, and I'm not going to lie, I kind of nerded out on this one. I'm pumped to introduce you guys to Max Coleman. Max recently graduated from the Lehman College Master's Program under Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. Max's research pertains to the manipulation of training variables and their impact on muscle hypertrophy, aka muscle growth. Max has conducted over 13 studies and has become an expert in how to grow your muscle and transform your body. So without further ado, here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with the one and only Max Coleman. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Best You Podcast. Today, I am super excited to be joined by the one and only Max Coleman. Max, just want to start off by saying thanks so much for spending the time with me today, man. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Of course. So I am really excited because today we're going to get a little bit nerdy, and we're going to talk all about kind of improving body composition, if you will, from a fitness standpoint, a little bit of nutritional standpoint as well. But Max is somebody who recently just graduated from Lehman College, and he did their master's program under Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. And Max's research pertains to the manipulation of training variables and their impact on muscle hypertrophy. And so I think the first thing to get into, most of the listeners are probably going to have heard the phrase hypertrophy before, but some of them have not gonna, are, are going to be people who have not heard of that phrase before. So I want you to start off just kind of defining what hypertrophy is and what is kind of happening at kind of like a mechanistic level when we say hypertrophy. Yeah, absolutely. So hypertrophy just means tissue getting larger because the cells of that tissue get larger. So all of the tissues throughout our, our body can undergo hypertrophy, right? So our fat hypertrophies, our skin hypertrophies, uh, but typically we're talking about muscle hypertrophy, right? It's really the only organ that we really care about here or tissue that we care about here. Um, so that I, I want it to be 
very clear and say that I'm not a muscle physiologist. I'm not even an exercise physiologist. I'm, I'm very much on the applied side of hypertrophy research. Um, so just keep that in mind and take what I say about the mechanistic level with a grain of salt, right? So I can give you like a spark notes uh, version of what happens uh, at the mechanistic level. So Great. we have these little homies in our muscles, uh, these mechanoreceptors that basically sense tension because right, all our muscles do is is pull and create tension to move our skeleton, right? Uh, and sometimes we, when we're exercising, we are producing more tension than we've ever produced before, right? And those mechanoreceptors, they they sense that increased level of tension that they've never seen before. And they start sending signals to the rest of your body to be like, hey, yo, what is going on? We've never seen this before. And we need to prepare for the next time that it happens, right? Uh, nothing makes sense in, in this life <laughs> without the prism of evolution, right? Uh, so basically, when we exercise, uh, we our body thinks that we're being attacked by some big, giant, terrifying mammoth, bear, whatever it may be, right? And it starts sending signals to your body to say, hey, we need to prepare for the next time that that bear, whatever, tries to attack us again so that we can be prepared for it. And it does through it does so through a bunch of different mechanisms. To be quite clear, not only do I not understand the process, but we as a scientific community don't fully understand the process yet uh, as far as we're not even completely sure how muscles contract, let alone how they they grow from, from contractions, right? So a lot i threw a lot there at you but basically you you produce some sort of tension your muscle says hey we need to do we need to prepare for that next time and it starts producing more and more protein in the form of skeletal muscle so that you can then produce more force with that new muscle that you have super vague and and, and broad answer there but that's generally what happens when we when we undergo hypertrophy beautiful beautiful yeah that is um definitely to the level of detail that is that is definitely sufficient for for today no doubt about it i want to help you explain about the difference between muscle hypertrophy and muscle strength because i think a lot of people have no idea that there is a difference they just think that if you're bigger you're stronger and there's a correlation but they're not the same adaptation so talk to us a little bit about the difference between hypertrophy and strength yeah. So, I mean, they are entirely different adaptations and they're entirely different things, right? So hypertrophy is just like we just said, just your muscles getting bigger, right? And strength, as much as it pains me to say it, because I, I really don't care about strength or strength training or anything like that, is a much more complex and nuanced adaptation, right? So strength is just our ability to produce maximal amounts of force, right? And hypertrophy is a part of that strength equation. So strength is comprised, like your ability to produce strength is, is predicated on a couple of different things. So one is muscle size. So a bigger muscle is able to produce more force, generally speaking. There are some schools of thought that disagree with that, but they're kind of more on the fringe. Uh, and then there's also skill acquisition. So you're literally getting better at what, like let's say the bench press, you're literally getting better at doing that skill. So you're able to produce more force. And then there's some neural adaptations that happen as well. And then there's actually some architectural changes that happen to the muscle that make you better. So like your penation angle can change to be more favorable for the movement that you're training, right? Um, so there is a huge difference between strength and hypertrophy, obviously. Right. Um, and there's a big difference between the training that you do to incur different adaptations. So what I would do if I wanted to get stronger is I would have to do stuff. I would have to expose my muscles and tissues to heavy loads in order to get better at moving those heavy loads. Right. Whereas with hypertrophy, I can just I mean, the range of things that you can do to cause a hypertrophic adaptation is huge. I can I can lift as low as like 
five reps, like something that would be considered strength training, or I can lift something as light as like 50 reps, right? Uh, and both would seem, according to the data that we have on the matter, cause substantial hypertrophy, and one doesn't seem to be better than the other. Uh, I think kind of, yeah, kind of cleared that up there, but uh, yeah. if you have any more questions regarding the differences, I'm, I'm happy to go into it. No, I, I think that's probably sufficient. I think the idea is that making sure that people realize that they are completely different adaptations. And if you are trying to solely train for optimizing strength, that is one strategy. And if you're trying to solely cause the adaptation of muscle hypertrophy, that is a different one. Now, that doesn't that is not to say that if you're solely training for strength, you're not going to see any hypertrophy. That's not to say that if you're solely training for optimization of hypertrophy, you're not going to see a strength gain, but optimization for one or the other looks different programming wise. Yeah, absolutely. So like, I mean, you know, like uh, I, uh, there are two different, you can think of it like two different cars. Like you have a pickup truck and you have like a sports car, right? One is able to go really, really fast, but it can still pull some load behind it. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other one is, you know, can pull a lot more, but it, you know, it can still move relatively quickly. So like you're going to build muscle by strength training. Like there's a lot of power lifters that are way more jacked than I am that have never done anything above like 15 repetitions. Right. Mm -hmm. And then conversely, there's a lot of professional bodybuilders out there way stronger than a lot of people who strain so train solely for strength. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of crossover between strength training and hypertrophy training, which is why I think people think that they're completely synonymous with one another. Um, but it, when you're a nerd and you spend your entire life like <laughs> studying this stuff, you realize there are some subtle differences between the ways that people train specifically for hypertrophy or specifically for strength, for sure. Right. And I think it's funny. I think um, the phrase that we use of that person looks strong it's almost kind of wrong, right? It's like that person looks like they have big muscles. I mean, of course, and usually there's some correlation to it, but I just think how that that's kind of funny how it's technically almost not the exact thing that we're describing. Um, the thing I want to, I just kind of want to go ahead and get into practical applications of it. You know, you talked about how you can go as heavy as something that you can just do for five reps and you can go as light as something that you might be able to do 50 reps with and you can still see some muscle hypertrophy. Talk to us about what like sets, reps, rest time. Talk to us talk to to us about some protocols. Like you said there's so many different ways to induce muscle hypertrophy, but talk to us generally speaking about sets, reps and rest time protocols to be able to actually build muscle and induce muscle hypertrophy. Yeah, absolutely. So j I just wanted to kind of clarify, like, these are all going to be like really like vague guidelines for what we should do regarding those three variables. Uh, but there is a ton of inter-individual variability between those, especially for set numbers. Uh, you mm -hmm. see like some people who respond really well to like four sets a week, and then some people who respond who need like 4D sets a week uh, to see uh, the, the similar amounts of growth, right? Uh, but with that, I'll give you guys some general guidelines, some blueprints that you can then apply to yourselves, right? So with respect to sets, uh, it's a little bit, it's not super conclusive, the data that we have, but we have two decent meta-analyses looking at a uh, number of sets needed to cause certain amounts of growth, right? And it's generally somewhere between 10 and 20. So you go far above 20, you're seeing some serious diminishing returns where- And, and just to, just to, we're talking about sets per week. 
Yes, absolutely. Okay, yes. Thank you. So it should have clarified sets per week per muscle group per muscle, right? So like my biceps 10 to 20 sets per week, my lats 10 to 20 sets per week, right? Uh, which I, I think is is good. There's a, it's kind of a huge range there. I mean, that's a that's 10 sets is a moderate and 20 sets is like a pretty intense uh, program, especially if you divvy that up across a bunch of different uh, groups. Uh, but like I said, there's huge inter-individual variability between those. Um, and I think that it's much better to start on that lower end. So if you're someone who's thinking about training to get a, as jacked as possible, it's really it's probably a really good idea to start closer to 10, seeing kind of how you respond to it, and then adding more sets to that uh, rather than starting too high and realizing, oh, this was too much and now I have to regress, right? So sets kind of out of the way, a lot of variability, but somewhere between 10 and 20 is a really good place to start, right? Uh, repetitions, uh, this one's a lot easier. Uh, whatever you want is essentially going to work as far as that's concerned. Um, now there's a lot more nuance to that, obviously, uh, but we have very reliable data suggesting that you can get jacked lifting super heavy and you can get jacked lifting super light. Now, with that, we also have data suggesting that some individuals may respond better to higher rep ranges or lower rep ranges than other individuals, right? So that's something that's also going to take a lot of experimenting with. Um, generally, for me, I like to stick between like 8 and 15 to 20. You know, those are kind of like the rep ranges I like to operate in. And then sometimes I'll sprinkle in some heavy work and some work that's like in the 30-ish rep range, right? Um, one thing with that though, is that training close to failure is, is a really important part of, of muscle growth and of incurring most any adaptation in the gym. Um, and training close to failure is a lot easier at lower rep ranges. And when I say easier, I don't mean like, you know, it's a, it's a walk in the park by any means, but what I mean is that you're actually much more likely to approach failure lifting, a much heavier load than you are a much lighter load. Cause usually we cut off those 30 rep sets because, wow, they, they hurt, they burn more, but in reality, you probably could have knocked out another 10 reps. Uh, so it's just easier and, and kind of, you know, uh, uh, more foolproof to, to do something in the, in the like lower ish rep range. When I say lower, I mean like five to 15 ish, right? Yeah. It's, it's just one of those things when you get to that many reps, like you said, you either it's a hurting a lot or you get bored. It's easy to lose your focus. And so for all those reasons, it's going to be oftentimes just a little bit more difficult to actually get close to that true failure point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, once again, there's nothing magical about eight to 15. I'm just saying right. it's more practical. Okay. Uh, and then finally for rest times, that one is a little bit more conclusive in that. So we had, we had one really great study by Dr. Schoenfeld, shout out, uh, where he was looking at short rest times, like one minute versus three minute. And they found uh, pretty reliably that Three minutes led to significant more, significantly more muscle growth than individuals who rested one minute, right? But uh, another study recently came out where they were like, they had individuals resting for three minutes. And then I think they also had individuals resting just as long as they wanted to, like until they felt ready to go again, which is a nightmare for a researcher to run that study. I can't even imagine what that looked like. Uh, but anyway, what they found is that individual, there was almost no differences in growth between those that just rested until they felt ready to go. And then those that rested a full three minutes, right? So ultimately with rest times, that one's a super simple answer. It's just rest until you feel ready to go again. And mm -hmm even more kind of granular than that rest until you feel that the muscle you're targeting is going to be what, you know, 
uh, causes failure in the next set. So if I give mm. an example there, like I do a set of squats uh, for, let's say, uh, 10 reps in, uh, in squat, right? And then I rest for one minute. After one minute, I'm still breathing heavy. Like I just, my cardiovascular system is still working hard to be like, yo, we're just, we're, we just ran from a woolly mammoth. Like you need to still calm down. And if I try to go again in a set of squats, the thing that's going to stop me from reaching failure is going to be my breathing rather than my quads, right? Which is the muscle I'm trying to hit when I do a squat, right? Yeah. So just resting long enough until I know that my quads are going to be the thing that, that reaches failure, right? Not my cardiovascular system or some other ancillary muscle as well. Uh, so rest I'm, times is pretty straightforward. Just, you know, listen to your body. And when, when it tells you it's ready to go again, it's re you're ready to go again. Yeah, no, I'm actually really glad you brought up that last point because that's something that I've actually never heard specifically explain the way that you explained it is you want to rest until the point where the muscle group that you're actually trying to train is going to be the reason why you fail rather than cardiovascular system or any other external thing. Because I know for me, so I coach group, I've coached group fitness classes for years and years and years. And the most common error is people just never stopping, just continually going from one exercise to another exercise to another exercise. And oftentimes people just stop their sets simply because they're feeling tired, like their whole system is just feeling tired, feeling fatigued, or maybe their heart rate's elevated when it's like you're not even using a weight that would really challenge that muscle to the degree that it needs to be challenged to. And so I think that's really important. One thing that I want to kind of step back and ensure that I give a grand, uh, a greater scope of is like, we are talking about the adaptation of muscle hypertrophy. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exclusively. Like if you're looking to get build endurance and maybe training for condition, uh, or training for a particular sport, like there are reasons to train a whole lot outside of muscle hypertrophy. So we're talking specifically about growing muscle tissue and, that's kind of the the focus of today. So just wanted to throw that out there and to give a quick recap again of your protocols sets anywhere from maybe 10 to 20 sets per week per muscle group, especially probably starting on the lower end for those who are not as well trained. And then generally speaking, probably the more trained you are, you want to bump up those number of sets. Then from a rep standpoint, you can almost do anything. You'd mentioned maybe anywhere from five to 50, but maybe a general protocol anywhere from eight to 15, maybe 20 ensuring that you are getting actually close to the failure point and what causes you to fail is the muscle group you're looking to train. And then from a rest time perspective, three minutes was shown to be better than one minute, but make sure that you rest until the muscle group is ready to go. Does that sound like a pretty good... Um, yeah, that sounds wonderful. One thing I will say about the 10 to 20 sets is that we don't know that if later in your career, you'll need more. So like there's some reason to believe that you would actually need less volume the the, mm. the further you get into training. And there's some other schools of thought that think you need more. So I just want to throw that out there. We're not totally sure that you would need you would need more as you get as your training age increases, if that makes mm. sense. But otherwise, yeah, that was a perfect synopsis for sure. Okay, great. I love it. I love it. I think to stick with this kind of protocol com part of the conversation, I want to get into the topic of progressive overload because once again, one of the most common errors for people who are just not super intentional about their workouts or maybe going to a group fitness class, they might just be picking up the same thing over and over again every single every single time, which again, 
is going to get you some results. You're going to be burning calories and all that kind of stuff. But if your goal is muscle hypertrophy, then picking up the same thing over and over and over and over and over again is not going to provide that response that you talked about earlier of your body being like, holy crap, have never experienced this before. Let's prepare for the next time that we might experience this. So define progressive overload for those people who have never heard of it before, and then talk about what progressive overload looks like from a practical application standpoint. So I wish I could give you a really great, like a uh, textbook definition of progressive overload. Right. There, there are ones and I, I'm blanking on like what the actual terminology is, but basically progressive overload means that things need to get harder over time as you train, right? That's like the most simple, basic way I can, I can say it. Right. And a lot of people actually just uh, talked about this on another podcast, think that progressive overload means going into the gym and doing better than you did last week, doing more than you did last week, which is mm. not necessarily the case, right? Over a training career, over a, a large, time scale, we want things to get harder and harder and harder over time, right? So let's say week one, I go to the gym and I do three by 10 on the bench press at 100 pounds, right? Uh, next week, I should, I, I, if I want to incur some sort of adaptation, I have to make that harder in some way. Now, that doesn't mean that next week I have to do 105 pounds, the week after that 110, the week after that 115, right? Not possible. That would, We would all be benching 5,000 pounds by now, right? But it does mean that I have to do something. I have to manipulate some variable that makes that hard. And that can be doing another rep. So three by 11 or adding a set four by 10 uh, at 100 pounds. Or I can obviously overload it and add five pounds also. So it's just super simple. It's it's really not that complex. It's just things have to get harder over time if we want to incur an adaptation. I wish that I could still grow from curling 10 pound dumbbells. But I, unfortunately, I got to pick up the 30s and 40s sometimes if I want to keep seeing my biceps get bigger. But so <laughs> people like to complicate progressive overload and make it this really confusing uh, adaptation and variable to control for. But it really is as simple as things need to get a little bit more difficult. And however you cause that, it could be just shortening the rest time even between like from one week to another. Uh, it, that's it, that's all it is. Things need to get a little bit harder. And, and then that that's what's going to cause our bodies to send that signal to our brain to tell us to produce more protein in our muscles. And thus, we get bigger. Yeah. Let's talk about how much it needs to get harder. And what I mean by that, let's go to your example. If, if you do three by 10 of 100 pounds on the bench press, the next the next time I go in there, let's say I'm going to aim to manipulate the variable of number of reps in order to induce progressive overload. Does that mean I have to do three sets of 11? Does that mean doing three sets, doing 10, 10, and 11? Um, how many of the, let, let's say, for, for the manipulation of the variable rep count, let's say I'm doing, and then let's say I'm doing 10 sets per week of chest to stick with bench press type example if i'm doing 10 sets per week of chest in week one compared to week two how many of those 10 sets do we need to increase the variable of rep count in order to say that we have sufficiently applied progressive overload uh zero 
technically. Yeah. So like, I mean, w- once again, you can, and I know, I, I know you gave an example. I'm kind of being pedantic here, but like, we don't have to add a rep, but if we're, if we're going with the rep one, it, it still is zero is the answer is still technically zero. So like, if we want to grow, we just have to expose our muscles to tensions that cause some sort of signal to grow. Right. And in week one, if I do three by 10, uh, in the bench press, right. And it was really, really hard and it stimulated my muscle, my muscles. And it, it started that cascade of responses. Right. And then I go in a week later and I do the same thing and it's still really challenging. Then I'm still incurring some, I'm still telling my body like, Hey, we need to produce more tissue to prepare for this. And then eventually I will prepare for it. And then three by 10 will just be too easy. So mm. then I have to go in and I have to do something that's a little bit harder, right? That that's kind of like a, a better way of thinking about it. I think rather than things have to get harder, things need to be hard to stimulate. Things need to be sufficiently hard to stimulate an adaptation, right? They don't necessarily have to. There's nothing magical about last week. There's nothing magical mm. about this week being harder than last week. We're just trying to tell our muscles to grow and we can get there through a variety of different ways. But there's no like you have to... Uh, three of your 10 sets, you have to do more reps on two of your set, seven of your 10. Like it's, it's not, there's no, I can't give you a clear answer there. on yeah. And I don't think anyone can uh, just because the data is not there to support any claim regarding number of sets that you have to make more difficult than the week before, if that makes sense. So eventually, like, that's why I think proximity to failure is really important and something to keep in mind, like how many reps away from true failure, failure are you? Because that's, what's going to cause like, that that signaling cascade of your body telling your body to produce more muscle if that makes sense sorry kind of rambled on there uh with respect to your question so i apologize but if there's something more i can get more specific with the the number of reps to add each week if you'd like yeah i think the i think what i would follow up with then from a practical standpoint is it more beneficial than for me to not necessarily go in with the plan of adding of going more reps but then if it just feels easier that's the signal to me that that's now I'm now it's time to do more yeah so i think the i think the best of us do both where okay. we we are in tune with our bodies and we know like so like so having a logbook is great and i recommend yeah, it for yeah. everyone right uh track your workouts because we got a lot going on in life uh, that we care about a lot more than the gym hopefully so we're not going to be able to remember exactly what we did week to week right uh, so having that logbook there to be a reminder, like, hey, three weeks in a row, you've been doing the same thing over and over again. Right. That's probably a problem. There's, there's probably something we need to address there. Uh, and then combining that, kind of tying that in with that, like, tuneness with your body and knowing if it's time to push harder or not. That I, I think combining both of them is probably a really good idea, like, to really get you uh, in the direction that you want to go, if that makes sense. Yeah. Great. Um, let's go, since you already t- touched on it, it's a great segue, proximity to failure. Talk about how close to failure we need to get, if and when we ever need to go till failure. Um, yeah, let's go. Let's Run with cool. that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so failure is extremely important. Uh, if you were to ask me, I would say it's probably the single most important training variable uh, when it comes to trying to induce almost any adaptation, especially hypertrophy. Um, now, that's not me saying, to be clear, like, it's the only one that matters, just train failure, Mike Menser's method, whatever, right? 
Uh, but it is extremely important if you want to get jacked. You have to train hard. And when I say hard, I mean you have to be a certain proximity to failure. I can't give you an exact number. There was an amazing uh, paper recently written by Zach Robinson, I believe. Uh, shout out. Zach and, and the data driven data driven strength guys um, looking at proximity to failure and its effect on hypertrophy, right? And they found that there was a nonlinear relationship between how close to failure you were and how much muscle you accrued, right? With significantly more muscle happening closer to failure. And when I say closer to failure, I mean one, two, three-ish reps away from failure rather than like four to five reps away from failure, right? So going to true failure not really that important for hypertrophy. Getting close to failure, extremely important for hypertrophy. Mm. Now, I would like to throw a caveat in there, which is most people are not that good at assessing how close they are to failure, right? Because uh, we have pretty reliable data showing that individuals can, will, we, there are studies where they say, go to failure, whatever you think failure is, and they'll do it. And then they'll say, no, 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 come on, do more, more, do more. We think you can do one more. And they have individuals doing like up to 12 reps on top of what they thought failure was, right? Those are generally rank beginners that do stuff like that. So with that, there's this process called setting the anchor, right? Where you take someone and you put them through some sort of protocol that actually has them reach true concentric muscle failure, right? You go down in the squat and no matter how hard you try, gun to your head, you cannot stand up no matter what it crushes you, right? And that sucks. It's awful. And I don't recommend training that way all the time. But what it's really good for is showing you like what it actually feels like to be one to two to three reps away from failure, right? So going to failure uh, longitudinally for muscle growth, not important, probably hurting you more than it's helping you. Now, that being said, going to failure to help you understand what where you should be training most of the time, incredibly valuable, invaluable as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So again, kind of throw a lot out there. there so no, that's perfect. I think that's so true. And I think I think oftentimes it depends on the exercise when it comes to people's awareness of how close to failure you are. Because certain exercises, you can pretty darn safely go to failure. If like For like a dumbbell bench press compared to a barbell bench press, you can pretty easily go to dumbbell bench press to failure by yourself without a spotter and safely be able to get out of it. Barbell bench press, not so much if you don't have the right rack and, and system set up. And so... I think that it is super important for people to try to gain awareness of what it looks like to get closer to failure, therefore informing weight selection and rep count selection moving forward in your programming. I love it. Um, and then just to, to kind of piggyback on what you said, if you're going to try and go to reach true failure, yeah. Choose an exercise that's not going to kill you if you do it, please. Like, don't do a barbell back squat by yourself with no <laughs> safeties or spotters or a bench press, same thing. Like, a lateral raise. You're not going to hurt yourself doing a lateral raise to failure. I, I can assure yeah. you that. So just, if you're going to do it and try it, have spotters, have people there with you. Uh, choose an exercise where you're not going to be pinned against the ground if you fail. So, yeah, just yeah. throw that caveat so I don't get sued in this litigious society. So uh, I love it. No, very, very important. Uh, I think I want to just touch on something before I go to the next question, touch on the fact that, you know, from back to the protocol of sets and reps, you know, we're saying 10 to 20 sets per week per muscle group of sets that are this maybe two, three reps in proximity to failure. Like you can't just do 10 warm up sets of an exercise. The sets 
our working sets, meaning maybe one, two, three reps close to failure. And kind of same thing with that rep range, right? It's like eight to 15 reps. There's nothing magical about eight to 15 reps if those reps are not one, two, or three reps in proximity to failure. So you want to make sure that you're applying the proximity to failure to the sets and the reps protocol that you laid out so so perfectly for us before. Yeah, it was beautifully said. And and I guess I should have been much more clear in when I was saying hard sets. So 10 yeah. to 20 hard sets uh, per week per muscle. Yeah, I think that yeah. you beautifully stated and, and good caveat there because you're right. I could do 50 sets uh, for my biceps each with like 10 reps left in the tank after I finished set and uh, nothing's probably going to happen. Like nothing substantial is really going to happen. So yeah, beautiful point there. We're going to take a brief pause in this episode to tell you about our brand new, never seen before, best in class virtual 10 week transformation experience. You can check it out today by going to nickcarrier.com. Now look, if you're somebody who needs accountability to execute on a consistent basis with eating healthy and exercise, this virtual 10WT experience is for you. If you're somebody who is upset with themselves when they look at themselves in the mirror, not just physically, but also emotionally and mentally, then the 10-week transformation is for you. If you're somebody who kind of knows what to do, but you struggle to actually do it, the 10-week transformation is for you. If you're somebody who loves community and loves support and loves being held accountable, the 10-week transformation is for you. With the 10WT, we teach people how to form the healthy habits, that will transform their body and their life. And now we have a brand new robust version of the program that can be completed from your home, your gym, or your anywhere. I mean, whether you live in Nashville or San Francisco, Atlanta or New York City, Houston or Denver, LA or Chicago, Sydney, Australia, or Toronto, Canada, you can even complete this thing in your hotel room. Our brand new virtual 10WT experience is like nothing you've ever seen before. We've had 453 people and counting who have skyrocketed their self-confidence by losing fat, building muscle, and building habits that they now have ingrained in their lifestyles by completing the 10WT, and it can do the same for you. Starting August 7th, we're going to be coaching a group of 30 go-getters through their first ever 10WT experience, and you have the opportunity to be one of the first but there are limited spots available. Like I said, there are 30 spots and they're going to go fast. So sign up by Tuesday, August 1st to secure your spot by going to nickcarrier.com. Again, by August 1st, go to nickcarrier.com. Again, if you need a greater level of accountability, the 10WT is for you. If you need help staying consistent with your workouts and eating habits, the 10WT is for you. If you want to form healthy habits going into holiday season, the 10WT is for you. Remember, sign up by August 1st. To secure your spot, there are only 30 available by going to nickcarrier.com. When you join, I promise you, be prepared to show the world the healthiest, most confident, and best version of you. Go to nickcarrier.com to sign up today. Um, I'm going to kind of transition a little bit. I will finish talking a little bit about your study and the impact or the lack thereof of of detraining or deloading or having a period of that. But one thing I want to ask is I think a lot of people have this question or this thought, and I know I do sometimes as well, like I have this one muscle group that I just can't grow. Like there's this, there's certain muscle groups, I think for certain people that they have more difficult growing than other muscle groups. And I'm sure there's a number of different reasons as to why that might be, genetics obviously being one of them. But talk to us a little bit about what are some 
reasons for why somebody might have a difficult time growing a particular muscle group. So maybe some reasons and then what we might be able to do to still be able to have adaptation in that muscle group or improve our ability to grow that muscle group. Yeah. A phenomenal question. One of my favorite things to talk about. Um, so I'll start with the first half, which is why, uh, because it's really easy to answer. I have no clue. Uh, there's a billion different reasons. I, I can come up with a billion different logical rationales as to why that might be the case. Uh, but remember, logical doesn't always mean rational. So just because it sounds right doesn't necessarily mean it's the case. Like for just off the top of my head, like for instance, let's say that my quads, like I can't grow my quads nearly as well as I can grow like other muscles. One explanation could literally be uh, my ability to tolerate the pain of my quads burning is lower than my ability to tolerate other muscles. Like it, it is so complex as to why some muscles might grow and some muscles might not like insertion points can, can affect the way a muscle looks. So like, even though it looks like this muscle is not growing, it actually is growing substantially and getting bigger, but the insertion point and the way that the belly of the muscle looks just doesn't make it look much bigger. Like it, even though it's growing, it doesn't make a huge difference. So like, for instance, like some people's calves insert really low on the, on their leg or on their shin. And it look, it looks really good. It's like, holy cow, that's a nice big calf. Whereas some people's insert super highly. And it's like this bunched up thing near, near the the knee. And you, no matter how much you grow it, it's just never going to look as good as someone who has like a really long tapered uh, calf, if that makes sense. So the why is multivaried, like multifactorial, incredibly complex. So I can't give great answers there. Uh, how to solve it. That's one of my favorite things to talk about in the world. And that's just through things we call specialization phases, right? Where you take a muscle, like a lagging muscle, for instance, and you hammer it, you hammer it for one to three to four months ish, right? While taking all of the other muscles, most of the other muscles and putting them on much lower volumes, right? Uh, like maintenance volumes or minimum effective volume. So I'll give an example, right? Let's say my chest is something, it's just a stubborn, like my delts are great. My biceps, my back, my legs look great, but my chest, every time I step on stage, it's the note that I get from bodybuilding or judges. Every time is like, Hey, your chest is lagging. Make sure you work on that before your next you know, show. Uh, what you can do is I'll take all my other muscles and put them on maintenance volume. And, and that's, that can be really low. The amount of work that it takes to maintain muscle mass is, is, is like nothing essentially. So I can, I can put those all on like five, four to like six sets a week. That's it. Whereas I take my chest and I bump up the volume and intensity for that. And I can start hitting it from a bunch of different angles as well. And really focusing on my chest for a good number of months, right? That's a really good and safe way of tackling lagging body parts. And it's something that we don't have a lot of data on, uh, but for me personally, and for the clients that I've worked with, it's worked incredibly well. Uh, it's it's just a really surefire way of growing lagging body parts. Think of it as like, we have this recoverability budget, right? And we can only spend so much on each muscle. So if we take a lot of those muscles that are doing well and put them on maintenance, we don't have to use any of that recover budget uh, for those muscles. And we can spend all of it trying to grow our lagging muscle, our chest in this example, as much as we possibly can. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a good idea to run that for a, a, a little while, like, like I said, one to three months to see like how, you know, you, your body responds to it. Uh, and people oftentimes are like, oh my goodness, are, are all my muscles going to fall off? Like if I'm not training those, don't worry about that. Uh, like I said earlier, the amount of 
work that it takes to maintain muscle is a fraction of a fraction of the amount of work it takes to build muscle. So kind of rambled there for a while. So I'll, I'll let you digest that if you'd like, and if you have any specifics. Yeah, no, that was great. I think, I think the specialization phase is awesome. And the, the acknowledgement of the fact that maintenance volume is really pretty low. Like one of the, my biggest takeaways from hearing how low maintenance volume is, is like people just don't do nothing. Like, don't do nothing. You don't have to do crazy amounts to maintain the muscle mass that you are currently at. And so oftentimes if you have even just a little bit of time to do some strength training and you feel like, oh, it's a waste of time, like 20 minutes or 30 minutes is a waste of time. It's like, no, you can still get a lot of good work in, even if, and that goal might, might just be maintenance. Um, but you can, and you can still even get in a 30 minute workout where you pr- apply progressive overload and and you see some great results as well there. Um, So that was one of my takeaways there. I think the other one that I wanted to just remind people of is while you might think there's a particular muscle group that I just can't grow this muscle group. It might just be because you're not training close enough to failure. It might just be because you're not doing the appropriate number of sets or the appropriate number of reps. And so I think there are certain people who are maybe applying the appropriate protocols and rest time and stuff and they're seeing a more difficult time but i also think that some people are probably just not applying the appropriate protocols to see that kind of growth yeah absolutely and and to be clear like specialization phases are not something i recommend for people who've been lifting for less than a certain number of years like i don't want to throw a a flat number out there because there isn't one but like it's definitely something to consider later on you you don't even know what your lagging body parts are a couple years into lifting like all of your body parts are lagging body parts essentially a couple years into lifting right so and there's other things you can do to try and tackle that problem before running a full specialization phase like for instance if your biceps just aren't growing that much start training them because like who trains biceps at the beginning of a workout almost nobody right so if your biceps are something that you find aren't growing as much as you would like compared to your other muscles just tack them on the beginning of your workout because normally people are like man my biceps aren't growing and you ask them like well how do you train them and you're like well i hit them on back day after i do a bunch of back work and a bunch of shoulder work and a bunch of chest work and then i hit biceps i'm like well, that's why that's probably one reason why they aren't growing, man, is because you're you're beat. You're done after that workout. And then you, you tack biceps on at the end. Yeah. So like that's just one thing. You don't have to run a specialization phase. There are other ways to tackle uh, lagging body parts. But specialization phases are kind of just as far as I'm aware, like your best bet of tackling lagging body parts. If you've exhausted other measures already, for sure. Mm. Is well said. I love it. I love it. Uh, I guess one thing I want to. I could, I got to make sure that we don't go just excessively long here today because I could just go, I could go forever. Um, but one thing I want to ask because I know that I know our audience and I know how many people are mindful of this question and curious about this question of what role does cardio play in either negatively impacting potential muscle hypertrophy or, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily positively impacting, but what role does cardiovascular training play in impacting muscle hypertrophy from the standpoint of like, if people do a whole bunch of cardio before doing hypertrophy training, then does the fact that they're exhausting their system negatively impact their chances of growing muscle? That's the first one if cardio is done before. And then if cardio is done afterwards of hypertrophy training, does that have the ability to somehow negatively impact the ability to grow muscle? 
Yes. So theirs is a great question. It's one I get asked very often. And there's a lot of good logical rationale. There's a lot of good logical rationales out there as to for both, as to why both are bad for trying to get as jacked as possible, right? Um, so like for instance, doing cardio right after you lift. So when we lift weights, our body starts sending a bunch of messages and a, a bunch of various signaling pathways to say, hey, grow, grow, grow. But when we do cardio, your your body sends a bunch of different pathways, some of which directly blunt the pathways that cause muscle growth, right? Now, in theory, that's really bad. But we have pretty reliable data suggesting that like, look, unless you are doing like a lot of cardio, you're probably not going to be impacting or hurting your gains very much at all. Right. Mm. Uh, now with that being said, with the example that you brought up doing a bunch of cardio right before your lifting session probably isn't a good idea, uh, solely because of what we were talking about earlier, right? We want to make sure that the reason we're failing lifts is because the muscle we're trying to target is failing right and if we're just dog tired because we did 100 meter sprints right before we came into the gym the likelihood of us producing lots of forces to the with those specific muscles is just a little bit lower right like it's just you're probably not going to get as effective as a workout and you're still going to grow it's still going to be an effective workout just not necessarily optimal right and then walking afterwards or doing your cardio afterwards is probably not going to kill you. Uh, again, it's probably not ideal, but it's probably not going to hurt you too much or anything like that, right? Uh, unless you're doing like you're training for an ultra marathon or whatever it may be, cardio is probably not going to hurt you. And in fact, we have some data suggesting that it's actually going to help you. So I think there was one study on rank beginners where they took like individuals and had them train for X number of weeks. And in one group, it was just them lifting for X number of weeks. And another group, it was them uh, doing cardio for the first half and then doing weight training for the second half. And they actually grew more than the group doing exclusively lifting. So there's mm -hmm. some, now look, I wouldn't put a ton of stock into that or anything like that, but I'm just saying uh, that there is at least some reason to believe that cardio is actually benefiting you more than it's hurting you uh, unless you are doing just inordinate amounts of cardio. So yeah, I don't know if I answered your questions there, but no, for sure. That was great. It was it, generally speaking. I think that I like how you let off with theoretically it would, it should negatively impact it because of the pathways. However, from the data, it doesn't necessarily actually show that. And I think that because I've, I've actually, heard about that study that you just referenced and one of the reasons potentially might be is just like if you are in better cardiovascular shape you might be more willing and able to tolerate pain slash get closer to that failure point right and just overall better condition to be able to train at higher levels of volume and so that's not to say that the people are necessarily doing it in the same training session. It just might be that person is better well-trained and therefore able to push to a greater degree when they're actually doing their training sessions. Yeah, for sure. So like, and there's, there's other like theories as well, like, oh, we're increasing the capillarization of our muscles. So therefore the blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, but uh, just a caveat to what you were saying, which is that lifting in of itself should make me better at lifting and should make it so that I'm able to do those things without my cardiovascular system taxing me. Right. Um, right. Cause uh, again, nothing makes sense through the prism, but through the prism of evolution. So like it, we have these specific adaptations to impose demands, right. The said principle. So it, it, lifting 
in of itself does cause some sort of cardiovascular adaptation, right? There's mm. a reason why individuals who lift have lower resting heart rates on average than individuals who don't, right? So it's just not going to be as robust, obviously, as if you do like cardiovascular training. Uh, but that's all to say that lifting in of itself will likely give you all the cardiovascular benefits you need to continue lifting, if that makes mm. sense. Now, I'm not saying yeah. it's going to make you an ultra marathon runner, but it is going to make you better at tolerating short bouts of resistance training, if that makes sense. So yeah, I, we could go back and forth all day as to theories as to why that study had the results that it did, but until we just, we just don't know, unfortunately. Yeah, no, beautiful. Um, well, I guess the last thing I want to talk about is the, the study that you did for your master's thesis. And I'm going to give a little bit of an overview for this study that, that they did. They were looking at the effects of applying a deloading week, meaning a week where you are not training versus another group who is doing continuous training. And they did a nine-week time period where they had 39 young men and women. They split them into two groups. They both were in a nine-week training training session. Group A had the deloading week. So they trained for four weeks. I think it was the fifth week where they took off. And then they continued to train throughout the rest of the nine. Then the group B had continuous training. They trained all nine weeks straight. And they were looking to see that if that deload week, that week of not training was going to actually benefit them because of reducing accumulated fatigue and desensitizing the muscle to anabolic stimuli. And to give a a little bit more context on this study, just because I think everybody would be interested, is these two groups all did four workouts each week, two lower body workouts that were supervised and then two upper body workouts that were unsupervised. However, they had to report their training sessions and and what they did. And that was y'all prescribed what they did, but they had to report their feedback and all of the sets. There were five sets of eight to 12 reps with two minute rests. And all of them had to be two volitional failure and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but basically that just means that you're going to failure when you can't do that same weight with good form anymore, with good technical form and um, anymore. With their nutritional protocol, it was you got to essentially keep your nutritional nutrition the same that it was when you came into it. However, people still did self-report five-day food records when doing them. So I feel like I've laid out most of the overarching things. Feel free, feel free to add anything that I missed with regards to the layout of the study and then talk to us about the results that you found. Yeah, no, I think that was a beautiful synopsis. So yeah, we, two groups, one trained for nine weeks, one trained for four weeks, took a week off to train for four more, right? Because there's a lot of theories again, here we go. Logical doesn't mean rational, uh, as to why deloads work. So in the 1980s, uh, the fitness fatigue model was originally proposed, right? Which basically said lifting gives us great things, but if we lift too much, it gives us bad things as well, right? So overtraining, essentially. Um, so that has led some people to believe that, oh, okay, so maybe if we train really hard and then we take one week where we just rest a lot more, that will allow us to keep all the fitness uh, characteristics that we gained from lifting while diminishing all the fatigue that we also gained from lifting, right? Uh However, there's very limited research on the topic itself, even though there's a lot of people proselytizing how amazing deloads are, right? So getting into the results of our study, that was the impetus for the study, right? Now, getting into the results of the study, we didn't see much interesting shit at all, right? So no growth differences almost at all between both groups. Uh, But 
strength actually saw a benefit to those in the continuous training group, which was a big surprise to us because because deloads and easy weeks and stuff like that are incredibly popular, especially within strength communities and, and strength sports, right? Uh, there are some theories as to why that might be the case. For instance, we weren't training for strength like our... our um, protocol that we used for resistance training was much more in line with what you would do if you're trying to grow muscle, not necessarily get stronger, tying into earlier in the episode that there are differences there. Um, but we also saw some really interesting stuff regarding like psychological evaluations. So uh, after the fourth week and after the nine week, we we introduced this thing called the readiness to train questionnaire, where we basically just asked our subjects questions that you would normally ask a client uh, after hard weeks of training you know how strong do you feel today like how was your sleep last night like what's your appetite looking like stuff like that and we actually saw a detriment to those in the deload group compared to those in the continuous training group so uh the individuals in the deload group actually saw an increase in soreness from week four to week nine like which makes a lot of sense right the individuals in the continuous training group didn't see any change in muscle soreness. oh actually they saw a decrease in muscle soreness which makes sense given the repeated bout effect right and then uh, they also saw the, the individuals in the dealer group saw a decrease in their motivation to train from week four to week nine, where those in the continuous group didn't change at all. So really interesting insights there. Now, to be clear, I don't want anyone to interpret what I'm saying uh, or the results of this study as never take a week away from the gym or never, you know, uh, always train as hard as you possibly can, obviously. Uh, but it does give pretty good insights into, look, you know, you probably don't need a deload as often as you may think you do. So I know me personally, for a long time, I would say, all right, I've been training for four weeks. I feel great, but it's time to deload because it's time to deload. That's just what, you know, the lunar calendar says. But now I'm kind of trying to be much more in tune with my body telling me when I need a deload as opposed to the calendar telling me when I need a deload, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I kind of threw a lot at you there so we can break that down a little more if you would like, obviously. Yeah. Um, my mind's going in a lot of different places. I think the first thing that I just always want to make sure that I continually remind people of is like, we're talking about the adaptation of building muscle and the effects of deload on that. Um, I, I say that from the example of some people who are, who are listening might be runners. And so like before a race, for example, it's very popular to deload your overall mileage if you will and and the reasons for that are a little bit different for the reasons of deloading for muscle hypertrophy and so we're talking about muscle hyper hypertrophy once again just to once again to frame up the conversation and remind people the context through which we're we're speaking i think the other thing to note is i think a lot of people who are listening to this have probably not heard of the benefits of deloading. And so this might be the first time that they're like, wait, am I, I'm supposed to stop training? And so I think a lot of this is new to them. I think the other thing I want to bring up is the deload week in y'all's study. And correct me if I'm wrong, but was them doing no training rather than reduced training. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So a deload, there's not a completely universal consensus of what a deload is, even in the scientific literature. Now, there are individuals, including myself, working on a paper right now. It's actually in review uh, that's going to come out. It's like a universal taxonomy for deloads, right? We interviewed a bunch of coaches uh, and we're trying to get a clear definition of what a deload is. But generally speaking, it's a week of reduced training volume where you're just doing a lot less than you would normally do to incur an adaptation, right? Now, with that being said, we didn't do that in our study. Given that this is kind of the first study of its kind, we kind of wanted it to be a proof of concept. Excuse me. Sorry about that. 
Uh, we kind of wanted it to be a proof of concept, which is we wanted it to be a week of complete detraining. The reason being is if, if that showed a detriment or a benefit, then you can, that would, that would let you like logically think, okay, then that this week of, you know, uh, an actual deload certainly wouldn't have a negative effect or what have you, right? Uh, but now it's someone else's job to then take my study design. And instead of doing a week of detraining, you actually use a regular deload week and see if there's different results, right? So there's a master's thesis for someone else. You're welcome. Uh, but yeah, so it is important. And thank you for clarifying that we did do a week of detraining rather than a week of what would typically look like a deload. And, and maybe there would have been differences there. Uh, we just, we don't know as of yet because no one studied it. So yeah, yeah. good point. Yeah. And I think one of the, to go back to a couple of the reasons that I listed out as to why the concept of deloading or detraining would potentially provide positive results or, or superior muscular adaptations is reduction in accumulated fatigue. So giving your body a chance to kind of recover from the fatigue. And then you have desensitizing muscle to anabolic stimuli. Um, and then just generally speaking, sometimes psychologically, there's kind of the reducing accumulated fatigue, both from a physical standpoint, but also from a mental standpoint. Sometimes just having a week where you know that you're going to work out, but it's not going to be like super, super brutal can be beneficial psychologically as well. And that's where I think, at least from that specific potential benefit, that's where I think that doing a deload that is less strenuous or lower volume is something that can can definitely be beneficial and doesn't necessarily need science to show from a muscular adaptation that like you're gaining muscle or you're not gaining muscle or you are gaining muscle so it's beneficial it's like if it pr provides you personally and it, it can change person to person if it provides you personally with a little bit of a decrease in psychological fatigue and then you come back more refreshed again psychologically then then there's a benefit there. So I just wanted to note kind of the different potential benefits because I think this is a new concept for a lot of people listening. Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a bunch of different reasons why people think the deloads are really great, right? And there are studies suggesting that you do see this uh, uptick in anabolic signaling after you take a week of detraining. And then, yeah, there, for me, I love a deload. It means, it means that I don't have to go kill myself six days a week in the gym, right? Yeah. Uh, but- with that in mind, even though there is a lot of good reasons to believe that, because like for me, the psychological benefits of deloads outweigh the physiological ones, no doubt. I've never been super convinced of any physiological data that we've seen regarding deloads uh, and certainly not convinced of any psychological data we've seen on deloads because there isn't any. Uh, but it just that made more sense in my head. That being yeah. said, the results from my study suggest that there actually might be a psychological detriment to taking a deload. Now, again, Take that with a grain of salt. It's the first study. One study doesn't tell us anything. Uh, and, and you are different than the individuals in my study, and you're different than an average. So listen to your body, not just some random person on the internet telling you what to do. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't agree more. So like psychologically, even though my studies showed a detriment to deloads, like I still love them. I still incorporate them for myself and my clients just a little differently now than I did previously, if that makes sense. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, before I ask the last question, the second to last question, and this could be a t uh, podcast in and of itself, but I know that it's super important to bring up, and that is muscle soreness. That is oftentimes the, we have the psychological correlation between soreness is good, soreness means I'm 
means I'm building muscle or getting stronger. Talk to us about whether or not there is a correlation between soreness and getting stronger, how sore you maybe should be or should not be, that kind of topic. Again, we'll, we'll probably just kind of have this this question to maybe one more be, be it, and I know it could be a whole lot longer, but give, give everybody a little bit of an idea of kind of muscle soreness and, and how they might be able to think about it moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So um, muscle soreness is a really, that's like you said, it could be a whole topic in of itself. It's kind of a really confusing and and, and uh, complex issue, but I'll just, again, spark notes it here, which is muscle soreness is not necessarily an indicator of the fact that you stimulated the muscle to grow, right? Uh, that being said, if you are never getting sore, if you're, if you go to the gym and you found you've never been sore or felt a twinge in a muscle in the hours and days after training, it's likely that you're not training hard enough, possibly. Now there are IFBB pros who have claimed to have never been sore before, right? So it's not necessarily the case, obviously. And conversely, if you're going to the gym and you're every, every single day after you go to the gym, you are so sore that you can't like stand up out of bed in the morning, you're probably doing too much. There probably is some sort of sweet middle ground where, you know, you feel some sort of twinge in the muscle, but it doesn't hurt. Uh, it doesn't preclude you from doing anything else. Uh, that's probably where you want to be. But again, it's not necessarily the case that that's required to grow muscle. So I wouldn't put too much stock into soreness in general, uh, just because it's super unclear as to how strongly correlated to muscle growth it is. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I just wouldn't worry too much about it, except for those two extremes. One, you never, ever, ever get sore. And two, you are sore beyond repair after every single workout. If you're not in either one of those groups, you're probably doing fine. And I wouldn't worry too, too much about soreness. So like, me, for instance, like I get sore in week one uh, of a of a of a training cycle, right? Because usually I'm I'm introducing new exercises, and that novelty is what causes muscle soreness. And in week two, maybe a little bit, uh, and in week three, even though things are getting harder, the amount of soreness that I'm accruing or or feeling actually goes down. So yeah, I wouldn't worry too too much about muscle soreness. Like I said, unless you're in one of the extreme camps of always sore or never sore, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think one more just one more additional question on soreness. I think some people, like I know my experience, people sometimes after a workout will come in and be like, man, like I've been training with you for a number of weeks now. And like, of course, I'm somewhat sore after the workouts, but never sore. And all of a sudden, just like after that workout, I'm like really sore in this muscle group. Like, what was that? And sometimes I'm like, I don't know because I didn't I didn't I didn't see exactly what you did for that. So is there any particular reason why somebody would all of a sudden have a much higher level of soreness compared to previously? Absolutely. Yeah. So one is that novelty that I just said, like doing a new exercise, even if it's the same movement pattern as a different exercise. So let's say uh, I was doing bench press with a barbell for a week and then the next or for a month and then the next month I switched to dumbbell, even though it's literally the exact same movement pattern of the humerus, like differences like subtle differences can mean that i'm taxing different uh, motor units or different mm. portions of the muscle differently and that can be like oh wow that portion feels sore but this other portion you know it doesn't feel any more sore right so that's pretty complex and then there's also uh there's a pretty strong correlation between uh exercises that induce a lot of stretch uh and mm. soreness so like 
what exercise makes you more sore than anything else? I guarantee I can guess it correctly. There's it's one of two. It is either lunges of some vari- variation or stiff legged deadlifts of some variation. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Exactly. The reason that is is because those two exercises are like or those two variations of exercises are the ones that cause a lot of stretch to very large muscles, the hamstrings and the glutes, right? Uh, so there is a pretty strong relationship between uh, exercises that are really hard in the stretched position, right? Lunge, think lunge, think RDL, uh, and the amount of soreness that those that those accrue, right? So even though I'm working the same exact muscle when I do a lying hamstring curl and a stiff-legged deadlift, the stiff-legged deadlift is just uh much harder in that stretched position and allows the hamstring to really pull apart as opposed to like a lying hamstring curl. So that might be why your client uh says like oh I'm much more sore today. It's it's likely one of two reasons. Uh they did a new exercise <clears throat> or they did an exercise that really accentuates the lengthened position if if that makes sense. So yeah. those are my two answers as far as like what caught what's like the strongest relationship with muscle soreness. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. This has been awesome, man. So many great things with regards to kind of education around what is hypertrophy, how it differs from strength, and then specific protocols as to how to actually go apply this stuff. And then, you know, touching on other principles just around variables that you can adapt deloading versus not deloading so many different things that we touched on today that were so great. Um, Well, I know people are going to want to go learn more about you, potentially the study, and and also be just interested in the different things that you go and work on moving forward in your career. I know I'm excited to, to keep a relationship with you and, and learn about the different things that you're working on. So I know on Instagram, they can go follow you at coleman.et.al. Um, is there any other good place that people should go learn more about you and kind of like follow your journey as you continue to learn more about uh, hypertrophy and all the other training, training uh, stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Coleman at all is definitely like the, the place that I spend the most time. So Instagram at, at Coleman at all, and I'm sure we'll link it in show notes or whatever. Uh, but there are for the real nerds out there, you can follow me on ResearchGate. My name is just Max Coleman. That's just where like research really comes out and there's no one really fun. Like it's not fun talking about it. Just like, Hey, this is the research. And then Instagram is where people are actually talking about it in ways that normal non nerds can actually understand. Right. Uh, but I also work for a company called built with science. Uh, and that's like a really, really good place for, uh, if you're new to this, or even if you're not, and you're just looking to like learn more about the science behind, uh, hypertrophy training and, and, and training and exercise in general, that's a really good place. So built with science on Instagram, uh, is, is another really great place uh, if you want to learn more about this type of stuff. But those are definitely the three primary places to to find me and where I'm most active. Beautiful, beautiful, awesome, man. Well, last question is going to be a completely different question for you, completely different shift because we've talked about all about fitness and the science kind of side of things. This is going to be personal kind of for you. So I think that in order to get closer to the best version of ourselves, it's a constant journey and a unique journey. I don't think that we ever actually reach the best version of ourselves. Uh, and I think that the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than you get than the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. So this last question is for you personally. Again, what are three things that you could currently do or three things that you could currently work on to get closer to the best version of Max Coleman that you could possibly be? Again, three things that you could currently do or currently work on to get closer to the best version of yourself. 
Yeah, that's an that's an incredible it's an incredible question that I would love to spend more time thinking about. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think I couldn't agree more that like perfection, optimality, it's it's an unachievable goal, but it's still something to try strive for. So like, there's this this graph in math called and there's asymptotic graphs in math where basically you you have something that approaches uh the x-axis right but never touches it but it gets closer and closer and closer and i think that's like a really good way of thinking about this um about like achieving optimality and perfection and stuff like that now three things that i think i could improve in drastically to make myself better at the stuff that i do already would be listening uh truly being able to like understand what other people are trying to say and like actually digest that information and take it and, and, and use it for my own. Uh, and then two would be articulation. So like actually being able to communicate complex. Cause I, cause I have all these ideas uh, about hypertrophy and science and, and, and a bunch of stuff. Uh, but it's just a matter of, can I actually communicate that in a way that individuals that aren't weird and lame and, 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 and nerdy can actually understand and apply in their own life. And then the third is super lame, but it's just like, I wish I understood statistics more and better. Or because I think a fundamental understanding of stat statistics and probability theory uh, would make me much better at uh, both understanding and communicating uh, scientific research. So I would think listening, talking, and stats would be the three areas that I would love to to improve on in the next couple of years. That's great, man. You know, I've, this is episode, I don't maybe it'll be around 5.30 or something, this episode. So I've asked this for to a lot of people, and I don't think I've ever heard the learn or get better at understanding statistics answer. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's super lame and doesn't really apply to like most things. But I think if most people understood statistics better, like we would have a much better informed society. Oh, no, I agree. No, it's great. I was I was like, halfway poking at the nerdy side of you but halfway like acknowledging the fact that like no that's that's definitely an important thing um but this is awesome today max we could have gone another couple of hours but i know people learned so much today like our audience is so health and fitness focused and like a lot of people who are health and fitness focused are looking to optimize their body composition by losing fat and building muscle and having these sorts of protocols and having this sort of direction and clarity as to how to actually do that is super important. So I hope you guys took notes today. I hope you have an idea of things you should either continue to do, stop doing, or change how you do based off of the information that Max gave today. But that's all we got today, man. Really appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. What a fascinating and educational interview with Max. And remember, Go try out the free trial of the virtual 10-week transformation. It'll give you three things. You'll learn the five steps to goal success. You'll gain access to three free video workouts. And you'll learn how to plan and set yourself up for success each week. You can sign up today for that free trial at nickcarrier.com slash free trial. Again, nickcarrier.com slash free trial. Remember, as I reminded you a number of times during the interview, we were specifically talking about the adaptation of muscle hypertrophy during this episode. Not strength, not endurance, not conditioning, not power or performance, but muscle hypertrophy, aka growing muscle tissue. Remember that it's important to get the appropriate volume of training in order to grow muscle and the appropriate kind of volume, meaning that the 10 to 20 sets of 8 to 15 reps, they need to be close to failure. They need to be within 
one to three reps for optimal results for muscle hypertrophy. Remember that it's important to continue to make things harder on yourself in order to implement progressive overload. If you can optimize your body composition further by building muscle and by adhering to these protocols, you'll continue to be a healthier and more confident version of yourself, therefore getting you closer and closer to your best you.